Let's imagine that this is a roar from the depths of time, a primordial sound from the past, deeper than decades, farther back than centuries, even millennia, a rumbling from prehistoric times of shallow seas, swampy, steamy expanses of vegetation decaying, layering at the bottom of the seas and swamps, buried deep, buried deep. It's as if composer Julia Wolf amasses these vibrations to shake us to the core, to take us to the core of deep layers of time and geology as she prepares to tell the tale of anthracite, anthracite coal, in her Pulitzer Prize-winning work for choir titled Anthracite Fields. In her masterful way, this primeval sound, little by little, transforms into recognizable human sounds. Names, names of miners that appeared on a Pennsylvania mining accident index from 1869 through 1916. And we should take note. She says, I chose only the Johns with one-syllable last names. John Ace, John Art, John Ash. A litany of just some of the miners injured in and around the mines over that 45-year span. We might suspect that these Johns, many of them no doubt, were called Jack by friends and family. And we'll remember that. Wolf titles the movement Foundation, and she means that in many senses, and she takes her time. It's 19 minutes long, and that's not only so we might be drawn into an experience of the primordial depths of time, losing a sense of clock time, but also so we can hear the names, the seemingly endless list of names of the men maimed in the minds of anthracite so we can not only recognize their dignity, but feel in our very bodies through sound something of the punishing pain of their way of living and working in the anthracite fields, the title of this work. Writer Jacqueline Fowler comes from coal in a real sense, from a county with coal buried deep, as Julia Wolfe's choir sings, layer upon layer, buried deep, layer upon layer, buried deep. That's a phrase that captures something of the rich set of stories that Jacqueline Fowler weaves together in her recent historical novel and memoir, Jack, the almost true story of the Molly Maguires. She's not just writing about late 19th century America, but about the layers of history, of how what happened here is rooted in deep time, and at the same time echoes right up to the present day. Touching real people.
Dr. Fowler is chair of the English department at American Public University System, and she received her MFA from the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre. Jackie Fowler paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about Jack and her ties to the region, which are the foundation of the book. I was born and raised in Schuylkill County. I like to say I grew up in Delano, which is a suburb of Monte City. And, you know, I went to Monte area and spent a good part of my life learning the stories of the miners. While I was lucky enough that my father was not a miner and his father was not a miner, my mother's father was a miner. And so there was enough of us in the family that stretched back a long time. And I knew, I knew how bad it was. My My grandfather used to say that he went down in the mine before the sun came up, and he came out of the mine after the sun went down, six days a week. He never saw the sun. He never saw the sun. And he he used to say that it was his his life that it would rain every Sunday. Well, it's a story that most people may know hearing the Molly Maguires. At least there's a passing acquaintance, Irish. Oh, yes, there were things going on in the coal fields, and there was violence. Yes. And of course there was violence. I mean, the, the people who worked in the mines had little to live for. Um, they couldn't feed their families. It was, it was tragic. Their lives were tragic. Many of them came from other countries for a better life and found themselves deep in the belly of the earth, digging coal and hauling coal and dying from coal. And so, of course, there was um, pockets of violence. But the Molly Maguire story was really written by the railroad magnate, Franklin Gowan. And he he paid the newspapers to write the stories to create this group, the Molly Maguires, which is a, is a name from an old Irish group in the west of Ireland. And he just transported here and made it the Molly Maguires of northeastern Pennsylvania. But in fact, he was just trying to crush the, the labor union. And what was interesting about when I when I started doing the research is that most people, and, and this is the way you do historical writing, is you look to the newspapers for evidence of what you're writing. And so many of the early writers, the first century of writers about the Molly Maguires, took it from the accounts that we published here in the newspapers that Franklin B. Gowan paid for. And so it wasn't until I I figured it out and got to the court transcripts and to the other first person accounts and things like that, that I realized, holy cow, we have a different story here. And it's the story that a lot of the Irish miners knew. It's a story that was passed around from, I I talk about it from great grandparent to grandparent to to son and daughter, and then again to, to the next generation. And so I looked with my father for evidence of that. Who were the ancient order of the Hibernians? This is a great, this was one of the great rhetorical masterpieces of Franklin B. Gowan. So the ancient order of Hibernians, which, which still exists today, there's, a, there's national organizations all over the, the country, state and national organization. And, and what it is, is it's a charity organization. So if, if the husband was killed in a mining accident, for instance, the wife and children would be put out of the house the next day. They were company-owned houses. And so the ancient order of Hibernians assessed as much as anyone could give at that time. And they kept it in a a pot. They pulled it, the money. And then for those women and children or for a man who was injured and needed an operation, they would give money to the family. 
but the Catholic Church didn't like that it was a secret society. And so they teamed up with Gowan to to make the ancient order of Hibernians equal to the Molly Maguires. Now, you were initiated into this story. Really, wasn't it a kind of initiation? It surely was. <laughs> and it was your dad. It was my dad. And actually, my dad's name is Jack, and the title of the book is for my dad. The story is about Jack Kehoe. He's the main character. But the title is for Jack Fowler. And so when I was a young girl, my dad, oh, he was obsessed by the story of the Molly Maguires. He wanted to find the truth. And so he almost had the true story of the Molly Maguires. And we would go out together looking for evidence of this group or the existence of this group. And so for me as a child, I'm one of six children. For any parent with six children to choose one person, I was, I didn't care where we were going. I was in, I was in. And it, it became my obsession as well for a long time until it became uncool, you know, to be obsessed with what your dad's obsessed with. And he took you one day against the wishes of your mother to the cemetery, to the site where Jack Kehoe rested. Yes. My mom was, I mean, again, she, she had six children, so she was overly cautious with all of us. So her gut instinct was to say no. And my dad had such a good relationship with her that if she stuck to it, that was it. But he... He plied his his finesse at getting her to, to pause in her in her doubt of taking an eight-year-old to a cemetery. And in that, that moment of pause, he grabbed me by the hand and drug me out the door. I didn't know where we were going. I heard my mom not liking the idea that it was a cemetery, but I didn't know why we were going there. And I will say my dad caused a, a lifelong interest in checking out cemeteries because of this. So you know, I, I'm not sure he did me much of a favor, but it's good for a writer to have that spooky sense of observation and place. And, and so it was, a, it was the start of the Molly Maguire story for me. When we talk about the result, Jack, it's an unusual form. Do we call it a hybrid? Mm -hmm. It's not this, it's not that. How do you describe what you did here? Yeah, much of the book is based on fact. I would say 90% of the book is based on fact. And that's the fact that I got from looking through court transcripts and going to first-hand accounts. And, and then there's the memoir part where I show in just a few chapters the cross-section between my life as a, the daughter and granddaughter and great-granddaughter of minors who grew up in Schuylkill County and the effect of the story on all of us. And, and not just minors, kids or minors, grandkids, but all of Schuylkill County and Luzerne County and Carbon County. It's left a dark cloud over our counties. And, and my father did me a favor in helping me see through that cloud. And I, I wanted everybody else to find their origin story as well. What you've done with the facts, 90% facts, is that you have put flesh on these people, and you have a sense. Somehow you're able to put words in their mouths, either from transcripts, which would be a natural thing. When you're speaking from your imagination, you're speaking from your heart. Yes, and from my experiences. So I recognized, you know, there's a scene in the book where they come to arrest Jack Kehoe, and his young children are screaming in the in the house around him. And, and we know that from Marianne Kehoe's story of what happened that morning. 
We don't know what they said, but I can only imagine what that was. And so the words that were spoken were from my own experience. So there's a moment where Kehoe puts his hand on his son's head to try and calm him, even as he's being beaten by the Colon Iron Police. And at the end says, God bless you, which is exactly what my father would have done. And so for me, it was a when I write historical fiction, I have to I have to imagine what the moment was like at a human level, not as a not at a fact level. And so for me, what I do as a writer is I try to recreate those moments. So it's not just courtroom transcript, but there's there are real people at the end of those words, at the beginning of those words. And so that's I think that's my role as a writer is to bring those those dry facts to life. Well, we've talked just a bit about your father, Jack. Introduce us to Jack Kehoe. Oh, Jack Kehoe was the hero of my childhood because he was the hero of my father's search. And and Jack Kehoe was from Gerardville. He was born in Ireland. He was different from all the rest of the Molly Maguires or the so-called Molly Maguires because he was born just below Dublin. The rest were from the West Coast. And so he was a little different. He was educated. He came here educated. He worked his way up from laborer to miner to owner of a saloon in Gerardville. He became the constable, the high constable of Gerardville. And he was part of the fledgling labor union that was begun in St. Clair. And for him, I saw a, a man who was doing the best he could do. And there were so many parallels in my life to Jack Kehoe. I mean, I went to school and to church at St. Canicus in Monte City. Jack Kehoe was married in St. Canicus. My grandparents lived in the, the section on West Monoy that Jack Kehoe grew up at. And so he was always crossing my life. He was always crossing my life. And he was the man that Gowan focused on. He was the man of power, that rising power from a class, a working class rising power that the, the men of means couldn't, couldn't allow to break through. And so he broke them before he broke through. And the women in this story, a number are strong, like his wife. Yeah. What's amazing about Marianne Kehoe is that she comes from a pretty wild West Ireland family. So two of her brothers were implicated in some of the violence that happened in Schuylkill County. But she herself was a really strong woman who was able to handle this rising political phenom of her husband and keep him balanced. And she needed to keep him balanced. When I was 16, I don't know why it never occurred to me, but my father took me to the Hibernian house in Gerardville, which is the actual bar where Jack Kehoe lived and worked and breathed and loved and had his children and it was, it's still run by his great-grandson, Joe Wayne. And while we were there, Joe Wayne's mother came into the room. And I, I remember being overwhelmed with emotion because she talked about Marianne Kehoe. It was her grandmother. And so I had touched the hand that had touched the hand that had loved Jack Kehoe. And for me, even at 16, it was kind of mind-blowing. It was an amazing moment. And the strength of this tiny, tiny woman, Alice Wayne, who was strong in the story, who knew what she needed to say about the story, and who could push around the men in the bar when she needed to, made me realize that Marianne Kehoe was still alive in that room that day. 
And another woman close to your heart is Sophia Cox. Oh, I love Sophia Cox. Now, her part in the book, everything I write about Sophia and Eckley Cox comes from fact. But it's only a plausible connection between her and Jack Kehoe. They had they had the opportunity to bump into each other, but we don't know from the historical record if they actually did. But her personality is one where I know that if she had bumped into Jack Kehoe, it would have turned out very much like this. She was the wife of the owner of the mines in Drifton, the Eckley Mines, and she was she was she couldn't be put down by anyone. She started with her husband, MMI, a school for minors' children. She gave gifts to the minors' children for Christmas. She had them for dinner. I mean, it was just such a different way of looking at the working class. And I admired her so much. And I admired her husband. But I will say this. Eckley Cox, I found one one day when I was... I lived in the, in the home. So that's what you need to know. I lived in the home. And as any writer does, I did everything before sit down to write. I would even clean the bathroom before I sat down to write. And one day after I had cleaned everything in the big Eckley Cox mansion, I opened his desk drawer, which still contained his his writings and his books and his ledgers. And I I found a manila folder. I opened it up and it it was something he had written. And I realized that he, he gave the eulogy for Franklin Gowan and I cried. I couldn't believe what I was reading, a man that I had loved so much, not that I knew him, but that I felt like I knew him from living in his home. And I called my father and said, Dad, Eckley Cox was friends with Franklin V. Gowan, and I was so brokenhearted. My dad drove to the, to the Cox home to, to kind of settle me. Your dad got right away how crushing that would be. And it's plausible the way you have given us the scene with Gowan and the Coxes in Philadelphia. That, that's very much how it might have been then if they had been friends. Well, we do know that they were friends. And we do know that both Eckley and Gowan were on the, the World's Fair and the Franklin Institute boards. And so they had a lot of time together on the boards. And we do know that at times... Eckley Cox had stayed with Gowan. And so it's only the next step to assume that they would have known Sophia Cox. Sophia Cox and Eckley Cox were from Philadelphia. So it was a, a natural connection. And it was a connection that Gowan would have used to his benefit. Words fail us in our description of someone like Franklin Gowan. What are we to make of his character? Yeah. I, I say in the book, for me, growing up, the stories of Gowan were the big boogeyman. I mean, my dad used to shoot darts at the Monte City Elks Club, and all six kids would be sitting on the bar stools waiting for us to help clean up and then go home. And we'd hear the stories of Gowan, and it, he was terrifying. And so I, I can say I, was, I judged against him before I even started the research. And the hard thing for me with Gowan is that he was a brilliant speech writer and his articulation was amazing, and and he was really handsome. And I thought, no, 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 no. If you're this bad of a guy, you need to be ugly and not intelligent. And and so for me, what tempered my outright, I don't, I, I don't know if it's hate or distrust or whatever the word is that I would put on Gowan, dislike, was the fact that he did have a balance. He had gifts that, that helped him get where he where he got. 
If we know the movie and it's being screened this month at the Kirby Center, the Molly Maguires with Sean Connery oh, and Richard Sean Connery and Richard Harris, and we know they actually did some filming around Eckley Miners Village. We learn a lot about McParlin and the Pinkertons and that part of the story, and of course that's part of your story. Yeah. So the movie is a Hollywood version, which is great. Anything with Sean Connery in is great. But the Richard Harris character is really not true to to the McParlin character. So McParlin was a Pinkerton detective. He was from the north of Ireland, but he was considered a good Irishman because he wasn't Catholic. But what made him good is he went to a Catholic school, so he was able to run in the circles with the Irish Catholic miners. And he came into the territory. He was here to make his money, to make his name. And he actually set up a lot of the situations that resulted in murder. And so he he and his accomplices were never tried. He, in fact, was the, the nail in the coffin for all of the people that were hanged for the Molly Maguires. So not at all like Richard Harris's character in the movie, not at all. And so for me, what was important is to get a, a, a true understanding of who McParlin was. Now, he, this is a character he created when he came to live here. Right. So he lived the character he created. In fact, he didn't bathe himself because he he didn't want people to think he was something other than this low life minor. And so he lived the life of the character he created. And thus the revelation when the time came for him to return as himself and the shock, although Mrs. Kerrigan knew the rat yeah, and that was a that's that's a brilliant scene in the court transcripts. It comes out in the newspapers and from there once the court cases begin, you have a wider variety of newspapers to pick from. So the New York Times start coming in and the Molly Maguire story was knocking Jesse James off the front pages. And in Europe, this book was published in Europe first. Everybody knows the Molly Maguire story in Europe much more than we know even here where it took place in our backyard. And that scene in the in the newspapers was a shock to everyone. Nobody knew who McParlin was. And all these men who had just been arrested, including Kehoe, are standing looking at the man going into the courtroom to give give an account against against these Irish miners on trial. Nobody knows who it is. And it's it's Kerrigan's powder keg Kerrigan's wife, Fanny Kerrigan, who recognizes them. And she she's another strong woman in the book. She stands up and she she goes after him and is almost clubbed by the policeman and th- and that's a tr- that's true like that that actually happened i mean i don't know exactly what was said i had to assume that i had to make that up but that moment happened and it's such it's it doesn't it say everything like the fact that mcparlin was so unrecognizable shows you just how bad he was as the detective in the in the region and setting up the situations as you suggest yeah, he couldn't find proof of the Molly Maguires. And we have his letters to Gowan saying, I can't, I can't find any proof of this. And Gowan saying, find it. And so he does. He makes it up. He creates the situations where they end up doing it. And there's a, there's a part where he goes to see Kehoe. Kehoe calls him to the bar. And this actually took place. And Kehoe is playing on the, the Atlantic had, the Atlantic Monthly had a, a Jesse James cover that month. And he's playing on that, showing McParlin. I guess he didn't have anything to talk to him about. And McParlin takes that as evidence that Jack Kehoe is involved in the violence. And so he runs with it straight through. And he just decides it's enough. I don't need anything more like, you know, let God sort it out kind of thing. 
All right, you come to the most harrowing moment. How did you approach telling the story? Because you don't avoid it. You tell the story of the hanging of Jack Kehoe. This was the hardest part of the book to write. And it began one morning. I, I had been in the school county historical society in the courthouse and everywhere for almost two years. And they had grown to know me and they got used to me and they started to bring out artifacts to show me like I held the gun that that Willie Bill used to kill people and and one morning uh, I was there and he came out with a little tiny box the one gentleman and he opened the box and he he put the noose over my hand and I I could see the little tag Jack Kehoe on it and I jumped back I could see the still I could see the blood on the even now and um, I, I didn't want anything to do with it and And as I started to research that part, I I realized how horrific it had been. He he was a tall man for his time, and he stood on tiptoes, and it slipped the noose. And so he suffocated. He didn't, his, his neck didn't break. And I remember when I read the coroner's report, and it was 11 minutes, and I thought, oh, thank God it was only 11 minutes. And then I thought, oh, my God, 11 minutes. And so the idea of somebody hanging, suffocating for 11 minutes, and, and the noose had slipped over his eye, so I knew what had happened there. I thought, no, I want people to understand what he, what he lived through to die. And so I, I slowed that whole section down. So everybody, I wanted people to feel it. I wanted people to feel the inhumanity of that moment. And the way you use the Our Father was right. I hope so. I mean, I know that the priest started the Our Father on the gibbet, and the miners, there were miners from all different nationalities came, not to see the spectacle, but because they, there, was a, there was an attempt to get Jack Kehoe freed because he was a good man, and everybody knew it. And um, when it failed, they came in support of Jack Kehoe. And... As the, as the priest on the gibbet started, they also mimicked the words. Now, I don't know if Jack Kehoe actually said it, but he was an Irish Catholic man, and I would assume, you know, I, I think of myself, I'm kind of recovering Irish Catholic now, but I went to Catholic school, and so if somebody starts the Our Father, I automatically start, you know? I just, it's an automatic thing. And so I assume that Jack Kehoe, once he heard it, just naturally started to say it along. But at some point, he was suffocating, and he, he lost the ability to hear, and he lost the ability to, to speak, and he lost the ability to follow along. And so it was a way to move from the exterior to the interior. And I wanted, I wanted his final few torturous moments for greed, because of greed, because of one man's greed, to be known. Like, this is what happens when we allow such hate, such ugliness to to develop among people. We're so much more alike than we are different. And I wrote this before the division we're seeing in our country now, but when I read it over again, I think, no, it's we're there again. And we're a people. We are all people. And at the core of who we are, there's a there's a, a, a joie de vivre and a a lust for for life and love and happiness and joy and we bleed the same and we feel the same and we experience pain and all the same and so I wrote that last piece to kind of get that feeling across like this is the result of division and hate 
And those who suffered watching George Floyd yes. suffocate. Yes, yes, yeah. And think about, it's almost nine minutes, I think it was. And so think about that. It's so, so relevant to that last 11 minutes. Now, as a writer, I, I had this crazy idea of creating it so it would take you 11 minutes to read it, but that was just, it would be too long and too boring to read something like that. So I just slow it down enough that you start to notice your breath. I write the sentences much shorter, so you're breathing faster with each period. And so at, at the end, when he's finally gone, you realize you're tense and you're, you're breathing fast and you're, what an, what an awful thing to put a human being through. What would you hope then for those of us who have the good fortune to pick up Jack, the almost true story of the Molly Maguires? You've talked about perhaps the sense of the dispelling of the cloud and and the personal story that is yours. It's as if these stories are more than just a good read, right? Yes, I think they're important. I, I think one is to recognize our shared humanity. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, I think those of us who live in the coal regions, who went through this pretty battering, bruising story, now, none of us were there for it exactly. But psychologists know that, that trauma gets transplanted in DNA and is passed from generation to generation. And I believe that so many of us are living with that, that trauma that none of us have ever dealt with because it's understandable. People didn't speak up after it happened because they were afraid they would be hanged or they would be put in jail. And many were put in jail. And so this is a chance for us to discover the trauma and to deal with it. And I know it's just one little piece, but it's, it's my love story to the area where I grew up, to the men and the women who fought so hard in this hard scrapple life of, of the coal regions and, and to recognize the beauty of the area that we live in and the beauty of how so many people from so many parts of the world came together and made it work. And I just, I hope that people recognize themselves in the story. Author Jacqueline Fowler speaking with us about her recent historical novel and memoir, Jack, the Almost True story of the Molly Maguires, recently issued by Europe Books. Jacqueline Maria Fowler is chair of the English department at American Public University System, and she received her MFA from the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre. For more information, on the web, JacquelineMariaFowler.com, JacquelineMariaFowler.com, and Jacqueline is spelled J-A-C-L-Y-N, Jacqueline Maria Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R, or europebooks.co.uk, europebooks.co.uk. It's Jack, the almost true story of the Molly Maguires, written by Jacqueline Maria Fowler and issued by Europe Books. For more information, JacquelineMariaFowler.com, JacquelineMariaFowler.com, or EuropeBooks.co.uk.